From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 127 for the week of April 11, 2013. This Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams of Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Tom Bell. I'm joined by Michael Bowling from our Disneyland team and our special guest, Sam Genoway. In this segment, Michael and Sam talk about the newest window on Main Street. Michael? Thanks, Tom. Um, we're introducing my new series, Windows on Main Street. Um, Walt Disney and those who built Disneyland had their roots in filmmaking. Um, Walt enlisted employees from studio art and set design departments throughout Hollywood to ensure his vision for his family theme park was realized. Entering Disneyland is similar to entering a theater. Uh, The attraction posters provide a sneak peek as to what is inside. The walkway used to be colored red, similar to a red carpet of a theater, and the names on the windows of Main Street are the credits for some of the many people who contributed to Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Um, Disneyland Paris is the exception, um, where windows refer to characters or stories from Disney films and shows. Typically, the inscriptions on the windows appear as fictional businesses and often refer to a hobby or the contribution made by the person who's being honored. Disneyland also has dedicated windows in Frontierland, Adventureland, and Toontown. According to Marty Scalar, to add a name on a window today, there are three requirements. One, it can only, the name can only be added upon retirement. Two, only the highest level of service, respect, and achievement. Um, And finally, uh, there has to be agreement between top individual park management and Walt Disney Imagineering, which creates the design and copy concepts. In my series, Windows on Main Street, we're going to learn about the people honored on these windows who work to make Disneyland the happiest place on earth for all of us. The first honoree we're going to talk about in this series is the most recent to receive a window and yet is one of the earliest developers of Disneyland, Buzz Price. Buzz was born in Oregon City, Oregon on May 17, 1921 and received his degree in mechanical engineering at Caltech and an MBA from Stanford. He was hired by Walt Disney in 1953 to conduct a site location plan and an economic plan for what would become Disneyland. Buzz was the first recipient of the Themed Entertainment Association's Lifetime Achievement Award in 1994. He was inducted as a living legend in the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions, IAPA, um, Hall of Fame in 1995. He became the first non-Disney employee to be named a Disney legend in 2005 and received an honorary doctorate from the California Institute of the Arts in 2005. Buzz always served as a consultant to the Disney company, but was never a Disney employee. My guest to talk about Buzz is Sam Genoway. He's the author of Walt and the Promise of Progress City and Disneyland, the Evolution of a Dream. Sam is a contributor to Planning Los Angeles and other books, as well as a columnist for the popular Mice Chat website. His unique point of view built on his passion for history, his professional training as an urban planner, and his obsession with theme parks has brought speaking invitations from Walt Disney Imagineering, the Walt Disney Family Museum, 
Disney Creative, the American Planning Association, the California Preservation Foundation, the California League of Cities, and many Disneyana clubs, libraries, and podcasts. He is currently a senior associate at the planning firm of Catherine Padilla and Associates. Sam, welcome to the Dis Unplugged. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So how did you come to know Buzz Price? Uh, it was kind of serendipity. I was a, a founding member of the Walt Disney Family Museum, and for the 55th anniversary of Disneyland, they hosted a three-day symposium that Marty Scalar had put together. Uh, and on the Friday night, they had the founding members came together, and we got to hear Buzz Price in his last public talk. Uh, m- my wife suggested that we should sit here instead of way up at the front where I originally wanted to sit. And that was <laughs> terrific because the people that I was sitting next to was David Price, which was Buzz's son, and we uh, we started chatting, and we became fast friends, and we still continue to be friends, and uh, we collaborate professionally now as well. So he introduced me to his dad, and I got to know his dad, and, and just a terrific man, and his, his mother, Annie, was also an absolutely terrific woman as well. Okay, so now how did um, Walt Disney and Buzz meet? Well, it, it's interesting. Um, when Walt was starting to formulate the idea, and, and a lot of this a lot of people know, is when he's starting to formulate the idea of a Mickey Mouse Park, is what he was kind of calling it, the original Disneyland, he was originally going to put it next to the studio in Burbank. There was some acreage that was over there, and he started studying, and that was going to be the original site. Um, that became unworkable when he went to before the city council in Burbank, and they rejected his bid to build an amusement park within their city borders. So he started looking around kind of haphazardly as to where another location might be and he got wise and recognized through a couple of his architect friends that he would be better off hiring a professional firm to do the work for him and Buzz Price was known throughout the industry he he had already done a couple of siting locations for some major corporations and even had done some work for Roy on locating a warehouse for some of the props that the Disney organization had. So he was not unfamiliar to the organization, and that's when he was with the Stanford Research Institute. So they got to know each other, and um, and, and, and ever since then, it's history, because quite honestly, Walt invented the theme park, the theme park, but Buzz invented the theme park industry and figured out how you make money at it and how you quantify it and you approach it in a scientific fashion just like any other major industry. You know, Buzz pioneered the use of numbers to predict the success of a park and he used numbers and feasibility studies to justify his choice of location to build Disneyland in Anaheim in 1955. So how did Buzz select Anaheim as location for Disneyland? What was his process? Well, the process was, the first question that Buzz asked Walt when he got hired was, do you have a particular place in mind? And Walt said, no, no, I want you to do that. That's what you do. You figure it out. So what Buzz did, he created a process, and he was a real numbers freak. He's the kind of guy who would, like, he'd walk, and he'd count his steps, and then he would estimate how much in the way of mileage that he walked and the velocity. He was that kind of a guy. <laughs> Um, very, very good with numbers. And this is well before calculators. He did all this with a slide rule and spreadsheets, which makes it even more, more amazing. So what he did was Walt gave him some parameters. Walt told him it had to be in Southern California. It had to be within certain, um, certain counties within Southern California. It, had, it couldn't be near um, a military base or certain kind of in- industries. 
so they had eliminated some of those areas, and it was a process of elimination. It was which areas didn't meet certain kinds of tests, and then there was like they started drawing these amoebas of areas that seemed to have all the right factors, and those included things such as what was the smog level, because he figured it was going to be an outdoor entertainment area. What, how much rain would they count on? What was the weather swings that they could count on? How often would the fog hit it? Because you know that would wear and tear on the buildings. And through all this number crunching, they narrowed it down to just a handful of locations. Anaheim was one of those locations. Uh, there was an area in La Mirada that was another location that was rather prime. They looked at a golf course that was in the Santa Ana area. That was uh, uh, another property that they really looked at. And the number one recommendation was a property in Anaheim, and that's not the property that they bought. <laughs> they bought a <laughs> property. Huh. So, so uh, it's remarkable to think that in 1955, smog was a concern. Oh, it's a major concern. I mean, especially in Los Angeles at the time, because we had, uh, being a native Southern Californian, you, this is well before we had all these air controls. So between the, the smoke, the dust, the pollution from the automobiles, and the famous California inversion layers, which would keep the smog down, air pollution used to be really pretty bad in Southern California, but of course it's, it's much better now, I, I think. <laughs> but it was a concern, and temperature was a concern, and they didn't want to be near the beach because they didn't want to have that sort of carny atmosphere. Uh, he wanted to be inland. He wanted a place that was flat. He wanted a place that had basically one owner so that they didn't have to go through the hassle of buying properties. So what Buzz did is the, the area that they did select where Disneyland is today, um, they were looking at parcels that were just slightly north. And after they, they called this the Ball Road subdivision, and after they picked that subdivision and they picked those properties, the guys all went over, of course, to Mrs. Knott's kitchen to have some chicken. <laughs> because, you know, you're, you're down there, and Walt loved Wayne Park, and he loved the chicken. So they're sitting at the restaurant, and they're talking about this, and some guy was at another table and overheard their conversation and quickly ran down and made an option with one of the property Ooh. owners. And because of that, they had a, the Disney organization had a $10,000 deposit on the property. They just walked away from it. And the deal looked like it was not going to happen in Anaheim, but the city manager and a guy named Ernest Mole, who was the uh, head of the Chamber of Commerce, Moeller was really, really big on having Disney come to Anaheim. So they worked it out. They, they heard from a guy named Fred Wallach who nobody really knows, and he didn't own any of the property, and he didn't even live in Anaheim, but he met with Buzz, and he said, you know, there's these 14 property owners that we're going to sell off to a subdivision, and they're just south by one property, basically, of the area that you guys were looking at. And it also had another important test, which is, as you know, there's these big high-tension power lines that run across Disney's parking lot, now through right. California Adventure. Well, Disneyland had to be north of those power lines so that it had direct line of sight to Mount Wilson for the television broadcast. So it was very, very important that the property itself be on the right side of the power lines, otherwise they could never use it for television. So that's how they came to discover this property, and they put together the deal pretty quickly, and they were able to buy um, 244 acres ultimately, and that was the foundation of the Disneyland that we know today. You know, Buzz must have been also an incredible communicator because to be able to uh, present quantitative studies to creative and artistic people in a way that they could understand, you know, because usually you think of creative people not understanding numbers. Yes. But, 
I guess Buzz had to present them in a way to prove, yes, this theme park's going to work. So, so he had to break it down so that they understood it would work. He, he had a, an amazing process that he called the yes-if. And, and he realized that most of the time when you're discussing ideas, the tendency to say, oh, no, you can't do that because of this reason. No, you can't do it because of that reason. And later on when we get to talking about the window, you know, and if you read the inscription on the window, the, it relates directly to this point. Buzz created a process called the yes-if. And the idea of the yes-if is that if you think of an idea, yes, you can do that idea if you do this and if you do that. Now, you, you still may not do the idea at the end of the day because you realize that the barriers are so significant it's just not worth the effort, but you looked at it from a positive, optimistic, yes, gung-ho, we can do this attitude as opposed to the no because. The no because is horrible with creative people. They do not like that at all. You know, they don't like to be told, no, you can't do that. So that was the secret of Buzz and his relationship with Walt. Now, the two had, and the two brothers, and Buzz was one of the very few guys that both Walt and Roy respected in this regards, is that Walt would think of an idea. And he was a very smart businessman. What he would do is he would think of the idea and he'd have Buzz do a very quick study. <clears throat> just to see if the the idea had any real merit to it. If the study came back and it showed that there was some merit, then Walt would get the rest of his team to work even harder, spend some money on it, develop the idea further, and then Buzz would go out and do another study. If it really started to gel, then Walt would go to Roy and tell Roy about what he wanted to do, and then Roy would hire Buzz, and then Buzz would do a study for Roy. And if that came back, <laughs> it probably was going to happen. Yeah, I always thought Roy and Buzz must have gotten along really well because they were both numbers guys. They were, and what, what, one of the things that Buzz did so well is he figured out analogs. He would take Walt's relatively abstract ideas, and he would figure out that everything has been done before. You just got to find the right analog, and he would search for things that were similar. So... I've now read about 120 different studies that Buzz has written for various theme parks and stuff like that. And uh, Disneyland, for instance, was compared a lot to Forest Lawn. <laughs> really? <laughs> because Forest Lawn, at the time, was the number one tourist attraction in Southern California. And so they looked at the, the audience patterns, and the audience patterns of early Disneyland and Forest Lawn are almost identical. Really? In what way? People showed up early in the morning, they left in the afternoon, then you got a second wave late in the afternoon coming into the coming into the park. Um, in the nineteen fifty two at Forest Lawn they decided to turn it into a theme park, so the guy who owned it, you know, Forest Lawn was a very optimistic, very beautiful place. I suggest go there today. In fact, Walt will visit you in Glendale because that's where he rests today. Mm-hmm. At least his remains, not his head. That's underneath the matter. Right? <laughs> of course. Oh, I thought it was under Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, they, they ended up making a tourist attraction out of it by putting up this giant mural that was 45 feet tall and 195 feet wide, and thousands of people a day would come up there to watch the magical show of this mural lighting up. Um, so, yeah, they turned it into a theme park, and it became the next 
really took over uh, for a couple of years until Pacific Ocean Park. And then when that went away, Disney became, once again, the big tourist attraction in Southern California. But but I digress. Yeah, the, Buzz had a, a very unique att- ability to take the creative and quantify it so that businessmen can make proper business decisions based on something that was tangible. And I've read enough of the stories that he... He gets it, and he explains it in a way where even if his recommendations are negative, you still might want to do the project for other reasons. So I, it's just it's just great work, and he basically invented that industry, and that that's why we see today. Now, so now Buzz's feasibility study showed that a theme park in Anaheim was going to be successful, but it's my understanding this was the first study of its kind, and he he needed some sort of confirmation. So he went to the 1953 IAPA convention in Chicago and invited the owners of several major theme parks at the time to hear his presentation of Disneyland. And from what I understand, these theme park, you know, icons were pretty brutal. Oh, yeah. Oh, we gotta, we gotta make sure we get it correct. They weren't theme park guys. These were amusement park guys. True, <laughs> this true. This is way before the idea of a theme park. And, and, and then the, the prospectus, Buzz did bring all these guys in and they did all, you know, the good old fashioned whining and dining. It's just like Mad Men. Shoved them with a bunch of caviar, lots of drinks, cigars. They had, you know, ladies were sitting around with them and stuff. He would run through the presentation about what Walt wanted to do. Um, the rides would all be custom and they would be themed. There would be a lot of landscaping. Um, there would be stores that matched and enforced the theme. There'd be all these public spaces that didn't necessarily make money. Oh my goodness. It had only one entrance. Yes. You know, amusement parks always had entrances from the four corners where the parking lots were, the bus stops were. Disneyland was going to have only one entrance. He was going to going to hide the thing behind an earthen berm, whereas most amusement parks, you wanted it right out there in the open. <laughs> they went through the entire list of things. At the end of the interview, they all went, you're crazy. This isn't going to work. Buzz wrote it up in a report. Walt looked at it, and he went, then my idea is going to work. It's exactly the reason why I'm doing it, because it's not what they would do. I think I, I one quote I heard Walt Disney say was, to hell with them. Pretty much. <laughs> it just reinforced to him that, that there was a better way. There was a better place because Walt was, you know, he really liked going to amusement parks. I, the new book that's coming out this summer, the history of the Disneyland book, the Disneyland, the evolution of a dream. I did a lot, a lot of research about the real motivation for Disneyland. And a lot of it was the fact that he just liked going to amusement parks. He, it was just something he really dug. But he couldn't get his wife Lillian to go with him because she didn't like them. She thought they were kind of dirty. And so he really wanted to create one that his wife and his family would really like and really appreciate. So that was what his, one of his major goals were. And he knew that if he'd like it and his wife would like it and his friends would like it, that, that others would like it as well. And inevitably he would have some fun with it and could possibly make a little bit of money since at the time the movie business wasn't really happening for him. Well, and he was right. <laughs> he, was, yes. he created a, a place that's really quite timeless. It certainly has changed from, I'm an urban planner by background, and it has certainly changed the urban planning industry because every downtown that you go to now is compared to Main Street. It's got to be safe. It's got to be clean. you got to have police running around. You know, that's Main Street brought all that kind of stuff back. So you, you got to hand it to the guy. The guy was a, the guy came up with something that's lasted pretty long, and 
I'm just amazed with the fact that for a vision that was so personal to Walt Disney, that after he passed away, the thing still exists. <laughs> well, you know? And also a lot of what Walt implemented in his parks, didn't he envision them hopefully improving cities? He he did. He well initially he wanted to just focus on creating uh, the, um, the ultimate amusement park, but he started getting a great deal of respect from leading academics. Um, uh, James Rouse, who is a major developer, developed a couple of cities, Columbia, Maryland, and, and was the guy who invented Faneuil Hall and the whole festival marketplace. Um, uh, absolutely adored Walt Disney and, and even got into business with Disney Imagineering at one point to create these kind of self-contained many theme parks like one in Texas and stuff. Um, and, and because he was getting a lot of good press, uh, Charles Moore, the California architect, said that Disneyland was the most important piece of architecture built on the West Coast. Um, Walt started realizing that he could do more, he could be more, he could do something else that could fundamentally change the world. So by 1959, uh, he had an opportunity to build not only a theme park in Palm Beach, Florida, but the crazy billionaire that was going to fund the project wanted him to build the city that would surround the theme park. And so this was going to be in 1959, and Walt got very excited about the idea, and he really started to study in earnest city building at the time. By the early 60s, by 61 or so, he was done. He was done with the movies. He was really done with Disneyland and the theme parks. He was moved on to trying to create a city in Florida, trying to create CalArts, the art institute, the, the art school, which is why he put Buzz uh, in charge of getting Cal Arts done, and that's why Cal Arts gave him that uh, award, and and also a ski resort in Mineral King, California, and those were the three projects that Walt was really focused on prior to his death, as from a from a planning point of view. Now, let's talk a little more about Buzz. Now, after several years as a consultant for Walt Disney, Buzz started his own company named Economics Research Associates, or ERA, in 1958. And Walt used this company to supplement his own ideas and also to bypass corporate bureaucracy. Yes. So, so, so he worked he on all kinds of – pardon me? <laughs> Walt even named it as well too. That, that wasn't Buzz's idea, ERA. That was, uh, that was uh, uh, Walt's idea. He came up with the name. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> I know that he encouraged him. I didn't know he even named it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, now, so what kind of projects did Buzz work on? Because he didn't just work on projects for Walt. Oh no no he'd worked on uh he worked on uh, almost a thousand studies over his career probably a bit more than that now um he was uh and the, the thing was amazing is he could work for competitors at the same time so for instance he was not only working for Disney but at the same time he was working with Lou Wasserman and uh and Jules Stein to create the Universal Studios tour um, uh, and then, and then he was working on world's fairs and cultural institutions and, and he has touched pretty much anything that's within this sort of themed entertainment world. Buzz has done some study for somebody someplace, whether it's Sea World or whatever. So he's been involved in, in all sorts of studies and, and, and with just with the Disney brothers alone, it was more than 150 studies that he had worked on. So, you know, obviously some of the things succeeded. Some of the things didn't, but that was that process of ask the question, yes, if, could we do this? It's, it's quite a remarkable career, really. Well, it's also remarkable that he could work for competing parks like SeaWorld, Bush Gardens, Knott's Berry Farm, Six Flags, yeah. and nobody seemed concerned. He wasn't, 
he was an extraordinarily ethical man. And here's a funny story that he told me. Um, when they were doing the purchase for Disneyland, there was one triangular property that was kind of at the north, uh, be the northeast corner of the property. And, and it would have been sort of on the other side of the inevitable freeway. And so Buzz recognized that although it was in the program area, it was a property that probably wasn't very prime for the Disney brothers. And, and he, he went to Roy and he said, you know, this thing was going to cost about $17,000 and I can afford the $17,000 and if you guys need it you should buy it but if you don't need it I, I don't mind buying that piece of property and Roy turned to him and said oh Buzz don't waste your money <laughs> this isn't going to be here in four years and you'll who wants to live near or have any property next to an industrial plant like my brother is coming up with so Buzz never bought the property <laughs> And, and you can imagine what that's, that's worth today. He was an incredibly ethical man. He knew that he would give everybody the straight truth. He would use the numbers and, and assume that his clients were smart enough to read the documents and figure out what's the right direction for them to take. He was the man who knew how to keep secrets and all the guys who worked for them um, knew how to keep secrets. Even today, you cannot view all of the buzz price study some of them are locked away for a few more years um because he was and this is you know 50 years later 40 or 30 years later depending on the project um he was an incredibly incredibly ethical man uh, he was funny as hell <laughs> a really biting sense of humor and he was just sharp as a sharp as a wit and very very passionate about what he was doing now, you'd mentioned the World's Fair, and you know we all know that Walt became involved in the 1964 World's Fair, did pavilions for Ford, General Motors, General Electric, UNICEF, Pepsi-Cola. Um, now, Buzz was called in to conduct studies on the fair. Did Buzz work with Walt on, on the pavilions built by the Disney company? Uh, he worked on some of the some of the feasibility for it. Now, what the the history with the Disney organization and the World's Fairs really goes back to '58 um, in the Brussels World Fair when Disney provided the film for the the America the Beautiful film for that pavilion, and so that was the first foray into World's Fairs. Uh, I, I understand from Bob Gurr told me that for the '62 Seattle World's Fair, uh, Walt basically rented an entire apartment building. And he kept flying his staff up there and they would spend like weeks at a time because by then he knew he was working on the New York World's Fair. Walt also had his fingers in proposals not only for the New York World's Fair, but for a, a World's Fair that would have been in Los Angeles in 1964. And a lot of the design that went for Epcot. Uh, the city of Epcot came from a design that Victor Gruen had worked on for a World's Fair that was supposed to take place in 1964 in Washington, D.C. So for all the World's Fair proposals that were coming at that time, Walt had his fingers in all of them. So he knew he was going to get himself involved in a World's Fair someplace sooner or later. Okay, now it says Disney Company's role in the World's Fair wound down. Walt Disney hired Buzz to seriously look at potential sites for a second park. So how did Buzz come to select Orlando? Well, um, a lot of it came from the Palm Beach experience when uh, James MacArthur, who was an insurance uh, billionaire at the time, uh, had all this land in Palm Beach, and, and Walt had a chance to visit Palm Beach. And at the time, at, at that time especially, Walt and Lillian really liked taking driving vacations, Lillian being his wife, for those who don't know. Um, and they liked taking driving vacations. And at the time, you know, he was kind of still new on the television show, 
And so people didn't necessarily recognize him, and he'd wear kind of a goofy hat, and people would think he looks like Walt Disney, and he would say, no, he's not, he's somebody else. So they drove around a lot, and they drove around Florida a lot, and really, really, really liked Florida quite a bit. And very early on, they started locating that that you know the, their process of elimination. They knew that if they were going to do something, they didn't want to do it on the coast. They didn't want to deal with the beach culture or the beach weather. They knew that that was very hard on on the facilities. And they started looking really towards the center of the state. And and fairly early on, Buzz was able to because of his connections by that time get very early information on the layouts of where the highways were going to go and knew that Walt was very big on big cross section or where big highways come together. And this was the perfect place because it was, you know, as he says in the Upcott film, north, south, east, west, you have to pass through here, basically. You know, Orlando sort of the Belgium of, of, south, of central Florida. You have to drive through it to get to wherever else you want to go. <laughs> and uh, so, so they they looked at Ocala was one of the primary uh, locations, um, but in the end, they the, the deal worked out, and they were able to get one very, very, very large property that was about twelve thousand acres, uh, and that became the centerpiece for building out the rest of the twenty seven thousand acres for Florida. And Walt was very hell bent on building the city, and that's one of the things that Buzz worked with me on the Progress City book was to walk through what Walt really was trying to accomplish with Epcot and what that experience would be and, in a sense, how practical the project was going to be. Therefore, it could be implemented. Buzz really felt that the thing could be built uh, at the end of the day, and that was a topic of discussion today with a lot of different people um, as, as we were talking about, you know, could this have actually worked? And so I, I can't tell you who I was talking with today with it, but, boy, I wish I could because it's like, oh, can't we build this now? <laughs> You'll have to tell us off the air. Yes. <laughs> but, well, I was wondering about that. I mean, the book, well, we'll get into your books in a moment, but, yeah, if anybody wants to, to know what Walt's true vision was for Epcot, they have to read your book. But, um when Walt passed and the, the vision for Epcot was put aside, what was Buzz's reaction to that? Did he try to, you know, rally the forces and get this built? I mean, what did he do since he clearly believed in it, that it could well, happen? He wasn't really in the position to do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that wasn't the, his role within the company was truly as a consultant, and he he always worked within a very narrow scope of work on any of the projects. His reports are for anybody who does like feasibility studies and stuff. You can even go online. Um, University of Central Florida has a number of the studies up available for free that you can now download and take a look, and including some from Mineral King. I think there's even a uh, economic feasibility study for. Walt Disney World that's that's uh, available online and his studies were were very very clear as as how he wrote the things he wasn't necessarily an advocate for anything he was the guy who kind of created the balanced scorecard so that you can determine whether or not you needed to move forward now there is an exception to that and that is Cal Arts Cal Arts he was extremely passionate about he knew that Walt was extremely passionate about it and that's why Walt um, appointed Buzz uh, to take that project on after his passing. And quite honestly, the reason that CalArts does exist is because of Buzz Price really pushing that thing through. And uh, according to Diane Disney Miller, it's the one of the three projects that really did turn out the way that his her dad was looking at. You know, he really, CalArts did sh- turn out the way that Walt really wanted it to turn out. And he's very, very proud of that. 
So uh, that was the one thing he was a real advocate. Now, I do know that Buzz did tell me that the Mineral King Ski Resort was the one project he really wanted to see happen. He really believed in that. But then his whole family was into skiing as well, too. Well, I know um, I I heard the presentation at the museum on Mineral King, and I and actually folks who listened to the Disney wrote about it. But his family was really involved in Mineral King. I mean, really at a personal level. Yes. For that ski resort. Well, his 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 son David, who was uh, the speaker at today's presentation, um, for a summer lived in a little cabin in the basement, uh, the basin of Mineral King, and started doing drawings, and and that's kind of where he started his idea of wanting to be an architect. Um, the family loved it. They loved going up to the mountains. They really believed that this project would have changed the way we build wilderness resorts the same way Disneyland changed the amusement park industry. It would have been that significant. And and I, I won't get into the merits. I mean, as a project goes, it's brilliant. Now, as a project goes, is it brilliant to have it in Mineral King, in this rather pristine alpine bowl in the middle of the Sierra Nevada mountains? I don't know. There's a lot of debate about that. You know, it's a great project. It's probably in the wrong place. And, boy, I sure wish somebody else would build a Mineral King um, you know, I've certainly done a lot of study on that on that project because it was just it was just absolutely genius. Imagine a, a ski resort that when you looked up at the mountains, uh, all the ski lifts were camouflaged, so you didn't see ski lifts. You just saw what looked like rows of trees and people skiing down in the middle. Um, it would make more money in the summer than it did in the winter because it was designed as a family resort to really take advantage of summer crowds. Uh, instead of taking the entire valley floor, only take 25% of the valley floor so that the pristine valley would remain because that's the thing that Walt was attracted to. And probably the biggest innovation is you wouldn't drive to Mineral King. You'd have to take a train. You'd park your car in a parking structure in a little town that the Disney family bought the entire town called Silver. City, you'd park your car in a giant parking structure that was built into the side of the mountain, and then you'd get on a cog railroad, and that would take you through a national forest into this this alpine valley that didn't allow cars, although all the cars and services would have been in the basement, just like the utilidors at the Magic Kingdom. Just genius. What a great project. It was, and you know, environmentalists, I know played a, an active role in, in shooting down Mineral King, but yet it would have been one of the most environmentally friendly projects california would have seen well it was you know even in that in that regards it was just a case of timing and this is you know we always think that walt was very important as far as you know urban planning as far as theme parks and that sort of thing but really mineral king may be one of the most important things that the disney organization ever did to the world that we live in today and i'll try to explain the the um the, the idea of having a ski resort in Mineral King was actually the Sierra Club's idea. They're the ones who were advocating this in the 1940s. They thought it was a perfect place to put a ski resort, not one quite as big as the one that Walt proposed. In fact, the one that Walt proposed was not even the biggest proposal for the for the ski resort. It was There was a couple that were even going to be larger type of resorts. But they um, – so he had, this, he had this idea for the ski resort, and then – they they started going through the process, and then the United States Congress passed a law that stated that you had to do an, an environmental impact report. So the Sierra Club was looking for an opportunity to test that law so that they could instill through court cases that you had to do environmental impact reports. So they looked around, and they thought, oh, 
this Disney Mineral King project would be easy because it really did violate some very core laws <laughs> that had been established beforehand. So it was kind of easy pickings. So they sued. They got an injunction and went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court voted in Disney's favor and said that they could go ahead with their project, that the Sierra Club didn't have standing, but they gave them a little window. They said, well, you as the Sierra Club can't sue us, but you can sue on behalf of your members. So there were members who lived in the basin. They came back. By the time they did the next lawsuit that had established environmental impact reports, it just made the project too costly, and that's why the project ended up dying. Uh, but be- but because of that, before then, you could build anything you want on any land that you want. After that, you have to go through environmental impact reports, even if you own all the land. So that had a huge impact on the way that we do business these days. Yeah, definitely. Now, you had mentioned um, California Institute of the Arts or CalArts. I know Diane Disney Miller, Walt's daughter, said that before her father entered the hospital for the last time, her father placed a stack of notebooks in Buzz's hands saying, here, take care of my school for me. And she said that dad knew the hands to place his dream in, um, that, that Buzz would see it through, and he did. He sure and did. so... This was so important to Walt that he left half his estate to building this art school. This must have really weighed heavily on Buzz to have – basically, this was Walt's dying wish to Buzz. And that's one of the reasons why Cal Arts exists today. (laughs) It was not not an easy process. That was a a school that had difficult financial issues because of, of, of an earlier embezzlement. Um, it was a, an unusual kind of school that had never really existed before, this kind of multidisciplinary school. They had difficulty in location. They originally intended it to be very close to the Hollywood Bowl, so that the Hollywood Bowl, Cal Arts, and then what was going to be the Hollywood uh, Film Museum would be within walking distance of each other so that you would have this trio of cultural institutions in L.A., but they had difficulties in acquiring that land. Then they started looking at the back lot, you know, the Golden Oak Ranch that they owned out out in the middle of nowhere, in Valencia, <laughs> and they couldn't do it out there because of earthquake issues. And then the city of Valencia said, hey, come, come visit with us. It was important to Walt because if you think of it, here's a guy who had very little education, I think, what, maybe a sixth-grade education, never went to art college per se, and knew that arts education was extraordinarily important to him, you know, from the very beginning. And so he wanted to forge a kind of a place that, as I look at it, he wanted to create the atmosphere that he had at the Hyperion studio, where different disciplines were pretty much piled up on top of each other. So no matter what, they had to share creative ideas. And he tried to create a school that would do the same sort of thing. And it obviously was very successful because if it's a Disney animation, it probably had a Cal Arts graduate working on it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think now it's a given that you go to Cal Arts before you become an animator. Pretty much. Or work, or work for Disney. Now, and, and Buzz was Cal Arts' second chairman, and he served as trustee for almost 50 years. Yes. So, and now, how was Buzz affected by Walt Disney's passing in 1966? Um, as it was described to me, he was just like a lot of these guys, crushed. He, you know, he had a, he had a uniquely personal relationship with Walt. He, he, uh, one story that Buzz told me that I just really stunned me. They, he was on an airplane once 
with Walt Disney and Robert Moses. And Robert Moses is the great builder of New York and the guy who came up with the 64, 65 World's Fair. And hell, he came up with the 1939 World's Fair, too. You know, the New York looks the way it does today because of Robert Moses. You had these two giants on an airplane together flying across the country with the two of them having this massive argument about having a monorail connecting the entertainment zone of the World's Fair to the cultural parts of it. And Walt said, you had to have my monorail or it was going to fail. And Robert Moses is like, oh, I don't need your monorail. And in the end, Walt was right. That area did fail and it lost a lot of money. So they're flying across the country and Buzz is serving both of these guys drinks. And then in the middle of the conversation, Walt stops and he looks at Buzz and he goes, you know what? You're too fat to fly in my plane. Buzz is not a very tall guy, and he was weighing about 260 at the time. So he was a, he was a round man at the time. And he, he was saddened by this and kind of meekly, quietly sat in the corner and still continued to make drinks. Later that night at the hotel, the door knocks, and Buzz opens up the door, and it's Walt Disney. And in Buzz's head, he's thinking, oh, Walt's come to apologize for that really abrupt comment that he made earlier. Walt looked at him up and down and went, you know what? You're still too fat to go on my plane. Good night. And then left. <laughs> and then and then what happened with Buzz, instead of being disappointed or saddened by it, he really just took some stock and he realized maybe he really was a little heavy. And he started getting into a regime that um, of doing walks that he did to the end of his days. And so he got into an exercise regime and got in proper weight. But that's the kind of relationship that he had. And with a lot of these guys, you know, uh, as they've described to me, Walt was this unique man. He was extraordinarily charismatic. But he was just, as Bob Gurr described him, a dude. He, he was just a, he was a, a, he was so normal that he was extraordinary. And to a lot of these guys, they couldn't imagine him passing on, especially so early and with so many ideas that he was still foaming in his head. So I, I think like with Buzz, with a lot of them, they were just, they were crushed and they couldn't, they couldn't believe it. Now, did Buzz's relationship with the Disney company change after Walt's passing? To a certain extent, it was it was pretty solid through with Roy. Roy used him for everything. Um, uh, Ron Miller and Card Walker and that generation of leadership uh, brought in Buzz to do a number of studies. It mostly changed when Michael Eisner came on board, and Michael Eisner and Frank Wells had their own people that they wanted to use, and 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 so Buzz was not doing very much work for them at all. He did do some studies for Disney even after that period of time, uh, but for the most part, he was busy working on everybody else's stuff. Now, I understand that Buzz finally retired in 2005 when his wife Ann took Buzz to Disneyland, bought him the most expensive gold Mickey Mouse watch, handed it to him, and said, now retire, damn it. Yeah, yeah, because he's kind of a workaholic, dude. <laughs> yeah. And then Buzz did pass away on August 15, 2010, at the age of 89. And, and then this brings us to this week when um, Disneyland dedicated a window on Main Street to Buzz Price. And Sam, you were there, and so is our host Tom Bell um, at the ceremony. And so I thought maybe you and Tom would like to talk about um, Buzz Price's window dedication ceremony at Disneyland. Sure, will make you feel bad that you weren't there. Yeah, I know, I already do. I've seen the photos. <laughs> <laughs> it was a glorious day. Mm-hmm. The wind died down and everything. So, where his window is located, for those who who don't know yet, and you'll all learn this soon, I'm sure. Um, if you were to look at City Hall, 
uh, and you were to look to the left, there was a small little outbuilding which was, at least in the design of City Hall, was supposed to be the police department. Um, for many, many years it was used as offices. In fact, it was Marty Scalar's publicity office for a long time. So Marty really had an affection for that building and they put the window, they put the window there and it's, it's one of the most accessible windows of all of these tribute windows in the parks. You know, the only other ones that we were thinking of that are at that low level was the one to the Sherman brothers, right. the one to the cast members, and then Buzz's window. So it's, I, I hope people will walk by and they'll, they'll pause and they'll wonder who this, this strange man was. I think he's also one of the only people who did not work directly for the Disney company to be so honored by having a window on Main Street. What surprised me is that they hadn't used that window yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? I, you're, you're right. And we were, we were talking about who else should have the window because there's now one opposite. So who should have that window? And, and so some of us thought Cicely Rigdon should, the woman who came up with the ambassador program because it would put it right next to the tour gardens. Right. Which would be really appropriate for her, but her window got moved someplace else. Um, uh, but it was it was a terrific presentation. They had uh, quite a bit of media that was there. I'll tell you, every heavy hitter of Disney management was there. Tom Stag spoke. Uh, uh, Michael, the new president of Disneyland, spoke. Uh, Marty Scalar was there, uh, Tom ba- Fitzgerald was there, Tony Baxter was there, Bruce Vaughn was there. These are all Imagineering heavy hitters. Meg Crofton was sitting across from me. That was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> did you say hello? Yeah, I did. I did. Okay, I went good. to a number of these people I said hello to and got some nice conversations with a few of them. I met Marty before, fortunately. Um, but um, a lot of the heavy hitters were there. I, I, I got to hand it to Disney. They brought out the they brought out the right people for this thing. Uh, the Dapper Dan sang, uh, especially when they would sing songs that were appropriate. So I think the song for um, Tom Staggs was You're the Top, right? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was like, it was a different song every time they opened the door. So that was they they brought out the winking blinking Mickey, which I everybody was really quite impressed the uh-huh. the place that I was sitting. So, but and, you know they they would they use the actual doors from the in the building and you know, would use that as the as the entry for for Michael Cole Glazier and for Tom Staggs and for Mickey when they would come out. So it's kind of like like their their curtain to to come out onto stage. So that, they did this just prior to the uh, pretty much as the park was opening, and right. the general public was standing around, I think, watching uh, what, what was going on. Wondering what the heck well. was going on. Yeah. Um, they they shot off you know streamers that were kind of <laughs> hanging in everybody's face, especially David Price, who came up and did a really touching talk. And David's his son and and a, a good friend. And um, <laughs> David, I think the, his line that I think got all of us was he was saying he started off by saying. Right now, my dad and my mom are sitting down at the end of Main Street watching everybody walking into the park. And we're all like, oh, God, that's yeah. just so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Tom Staggs is trying to pull the streamers off the tree. Yes, yes, yes. He was, he was getting into the show, too. And so, and like I said, I, I hope that these guys all read who Buzz was beforehand and take to heart his, right. his terrific work. Uh, but it was just an absolutely lovely, perfect Southern California day. Uh, the entire family was there, David, uh, his twin sister, his other sister, and his brother is a sculptor. So they had the whole family and grandkids were there. So there was a good showing of them. Club 33 members were invited uh, to attend the event as well. And I was very impressed with the media turnout. There was quite a, quite a bit of uh, media there. So that was very sweet, too. Now, can you describe the window for us and, and the meaning of the inscription? 
Um, yeah, the, uh, the, the streamers thing. I'm just thinking of them all sucking up the streamers. The windows themselves are always kind of like inside jokes for the, the people that are there. And this one hits really well. So it's, uh, founded 1955. The company's known as the Price is Right Land Company, <laughs> which I thought was very good. Uh, let's see here. Uh, call, uh, call on your numbers, man, for the best price. So, nice little pun there. Harrison Buzz Price, founder and finder, because not only did he find Disneyland, but he also found the location for Walt Disney World as well. So, he was very influential in finding that location. So, he knew how to do that. And this goes to that yes, if. And this is something I hope management reads. It says, we never say no. Yes makes more sense. And that's C-E-N-T-S as opposed to sense. So, you know, it's just a reminder that, you know, if you optimistically go into these ideas and you ask the yes-ifs, you'll probably make the right decision, which is probably going to make you the most money. So it's a, it's a, it's a perfect window, and, and none of us knew what it was going to say, and really none of us knew where it was going to be located until this morning. Well, you know, and that fits Walt's philosophy, too, that if you build it and you put quality into it, you'll get the money back. Yes, yes. And so, Buzz would write that in almost every study, that, you know, if you invest this or if you invest this, this is what that return would be. And I think Walt generally took the more expensive options. <laughs> Much to the dismay of Roy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know when you and I were, were talking off air, you told me that um, Buzz had a great influence on the books you wrote, Sam. Um, Walt and the promise of progress city and your soon to be published disneyland the evolution of a dream so you can tell us a little about how buzz has influenced you well sure the in the case of progress city i'm an urban planner by background that's my day job and i i do the types of charrettes these are group discussions uh with creative and numbers types to try to figure out a way of implementing dreams and so i i do that sort of work and i as a kid growing up in southern california i i can reveal my age by saying i'm as old as a mountain and as i was growing up in southern california my mom used to take my much older brothers and myself to disneyland all the time because at the time it was a wonderful blue collar dream it didn't cost much to get in it did cost a lot of money for food and go on the rides which meant we never ate in the park and we never went on the rides. But I would go on the free rides all the time, and one of those was the Carousel of Progress. And for those who remember, the Carousel of Progress used to have this most amazing model of a, of a fanciful city called Progress City on the second mm -hmm. level. And I was just at the ripe age of, wow, could they actually build that? Is that real? Is that just so wonderful, this model of Progress City? Then I grew up and became an urban planner, and I decided one day, I'm going to do a feasibility study. I'm going to approach this the same way that Buzz would look at one of Walt's projects and kind of work backwards to figure out what were the influences and then from the influences, determine economically if the project would have penciled out correctly. And then I got a chance to, I started working on that project, then I met David Price, and then David met, allowed me to meet his dad, and then his dad and I were talking quite a bit, and, and really gave me the insight of, insight of where Walt was trying to go with the city, and making me recognize that it wasn't as revolutionary as everybody thought, that really Walt's vision for the city of Epcot was to take the best elements of urbanism that he had discovered on his travels throughout the world and just try to combine them in one place. 
which was the same kind of process that he applied to Disneyland, and he knew that Disneyland worked out pretty well. So he knew that that methodology would work out. So it was fascinating, and it really started getting me working backwards into Walt's brain as to what he what he thought about three-dimensional design and trying to use the sort of quantifiable attributes that Buzz would use. And just talking to one of the few guys in the room with Epcot, you know, there were, Walt didn't have a lot of guys working on that project. And Buzz was one of the very, very few that was in the room at the time. So he had a unique insight that I don't believe anybody else had. And then for yeah. the Disneyland book, how can you talk about, a, how can you write a biography about Disneyland without talking about Buzz Price? Because he didn't find the place after all. And, and that when I go into a great detail and discovered this business of this Fred Wallach guy and the property problems and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I also remember that model on the second floor of Carousel of Progress. And, you know, for our folks visiting the Magic Kingdom at Disney World, you can see a very tiny piece oh. of that model when you zip by it quickly on the people mover. So oh. it's sad that they've chopped it up and then they have it there where you can't even study it. The thing was 6,900 square feet. Imagine that. It was was enormous. It was 115 feet across the front. It had 24,000 trees. It had something like 4,500 buildings that were lit. The buildings that were towards the front where you could actually look in the window, they built furniture in those buildings. Every single vehicle moved. It had monorails. It had trains. It had people movers. Oh, it was just marvelous. And it was part of Walt's methodology of, you know, he liked building models. He liked models. He, he thought drawings would lie. He thought his artists were so talented they could make anything look good in a drawing, but a model was different, and this was a chance for them to experiment and see what Epcot, what he wanted to build in Florida actually would have looked like. So it was just the greatest model in the face of the universe. You can go on YouTube, and you can find a couple little snippets of it, and it doesn't do it any justice at all. No, no you had to see that one in person. Yes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe when they redo interventions they'll bring it back <laughs> oh god that would be neat well you know well let's see they did bring rock candy mountain to dca so you know so anything's possible that's right they keep looking through the files <laughs> that's right so now now say well i'm hoping that our listeners after hearing you talk about buzz price will stop by that window you know there in town square and you know read it and maybe you know Give us a thank you and dazzle their friends with their knowledge of of the man who's honored in this window. That's right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know what the exact politics of this are, but I am trying to I am starting to believe if you think about it, on the city hall side where Walt's apartment is, which I guess you would think that that's the ultimate tribute is Walt's apartment, the only guys that are on that side I think are Marty and Buzz. I don't, I don't think there's anybody else on the main, I'd have to look in the city hall windows to see if there's other people in the city hall windows, but I don't think that's the case. So these are his right hand guys. Right. Yeah. Literally on the right hand of Walt. Oh, oh, what a connection. Oh, I gotta go nice. back and look at that. That's very good. You write that one down. <laughs> oh, God, if that's true, that's a good line. I'll have to use that one later. Thanks, guys. <laughs> but you heard it here first on the digital right. book. Nice. <laughs> Now, Sam, how can our listeners get in touch with you and order your books? Certainly. Uh, both books are available on Amazon. Uh, Walt and the Promise of Progress City is available already. 
as both paperback and Kindle. So go to Amazon there. Uh, Disneyland, The Evolution of a Dream comes out in August, <laughs> surprisingly on the same day as Marty's book, Marty Scalar's book. I, I'm very pleased with that. That was completely by accident. Um, and that you can pre-order already as a paperback. It'll be coming out in all formats, uh, Nook and all that kind of stuff because it's a much bigger publisher. Uh, I also write a column every week on Mice Chat, Mice Age. It's the Samland column, and it's on Thursdays generally, and it deals with something about planning or the environment or whatever whimsy I have at the moment. <laughs> um, this last week, both last week and this week, uh, for those who are interested in learning more about Buzz, two years ago, I wrote this series uh, asking the question of the Disney organization, why does Buzz not have a window on Main Street? And two years later, almost they to the week, I was reminded, he, it's there <laughs> now. So if you want to learn a bit more about the details about this extraordinary man, uh, go visit uh, My Stage Mice Chat. Um, you can get a hold of me on Facebook with Sam Genoway or Twitter at Sam Land Disney. Uh, there's probably other social media ways you can get a hold of me, but I don't know them off the top of my head. So, And we'll have all those links in our show notes yep, definitely. as well. Okay. Well, Sam, thank you for joining us on the Diz Unplugged to talk about Buzz Price, and we look forward to having you back on the show when your book, Disneyland, The Evolution of a Dream, is published. Thank you. This was really fun, you guys. Thanks. We enjoyed it. We had a great time. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Sam. That is going to do it for this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch our other Disneyland shows this week. And, of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.